This is our continuing study on the eldership, and we've dealt with the work and qualifications of elders, and we've been looking at uh, the qualifications of deacons. So let's proceed. We won't uh, backtrack any other than just to list the qualifications that are given in 1 Timothy 3 for deacons. And then we come to this one that we found <clears throat> as a qualification for the elders as well. And I don't know if you remember what we said at that time, but I will review it quickly. And again, let me say, which I think I said back at that time, uh, there's disagreement over this qualification, and I've done the best I could to uh, study it and understand the passage, but uh, I'm obviously very receptive to any additional evidence or input that uh, might be forthcoming. This uh, expression, husband of one wife, it's of course in the plural in, in, uh, for deacons, not plural wives, but plural meaning that various deacons are each to be husband, is the concept of one wife's husband. So what can you draw from that? Well, you would draw from that for sure, would you not, that he has to be married. And obviously it would have to be a scriptural marriage. I wouldn't necessarily assume that from the qualification. I would assume it from New Testament teaching, and therefore it would follow uh, that uh, if he has to be married, he has to be married scripturally. And then notice also that this would imply that he doesn't have two or more wives, which would have been more of a problem in the first century uh, than we have ever had to face in our own culture. Those would be certain meanings that I think we could draw from this passage. What I understand the passage actually to be getting to, getting, what it's driving at is his role as a husband directed to his wife. He must be a devoted husband. So um, we have to be careful about reading in anything into this qualification that's not explicitly stated or that is not definitely implied. Sometimes we draw conclusions that are not necessarily implied uh, in the passages. Notice that a scripturally divorced and remarried individual is still uh, one wife's husband. A remarried widower is still one wife's husband. He's not... Uh, two wives' husband in his uh, current condition. So a man whose first wife has died is no longer the husband of one wife. Notice the terminology of the qualification. It's talking about his current condition, his present status. That's the case with several of these qualifications. A person cannot take the position, well, I, I qualified back you know, several years ago on that. I don't have to be qualified on it now. Uh, no, a number of these, uh, these qualifications are ongoing present tense. Remember, we found that to be the case with Titus 1.7 and having faithful children. The man who remarries after his first wife dies becomes once again uh, the husband of one wife. Why? Why would I make that bold claim? Because Paul addressed this, I think, very succinctly in Romans chapter 7, another context, but it, it's a principle or concept that is very clear that we need to understand because as human beings we are more likely to carry psychological and emotional baggage uh, with uh, our, our mates after they are gone. Notice the terminology and we need to understand this as Christians that even if you know obviously we love our mates uh, but if they die that relationship, as far as the marriage relationship, is terminated. 
It will not go on into eternity. Um, remember Jesus said in Matthew 22, there will be no marriage in heaven like that, like we have on earth. So he really presses this point here. Of course, he's making a comparison with uh, the old law. But in doing so, he tells us, he gives us additional information about the nature of marriage and how it's an earthly institution and how it functions. Uh, notice that as long as uh, these two individuals are alive on earth, then their relationship is governed by a very specific law that God has given regarding marriage. Uh, but when one of them dies, that law is no longer applicable to that individual. She is free from that law. She is released from that law. And of course that applies uh, to the male as well. So it seems to me it wouldn't be fair to um, carry the baggage of a previous marriage that was scriptural into the current status of an individual. Notice that the phrase husband of one wife in both English and the original is not equivalent to the phrase married only once. Do you see how we can impose our own assumption onto the text? Those are not equivalent terms or expressions. We tend to read this into these words, but that is not uh, the foregone meaning of that expression uh, which we find in this passage. Uh, history gives us a little bit of input. We can't necessarily interpret scripture based uh, strictly on, on the history of what was going on in the world at that time, but we know that in the pagan world of the first century that uh, uh, sexual excesses were commonplace. We see this especially in the Corinthian letter, but we also see it in other passages. Notice that whenever the council came together and, and said, you know, what, what are the Gentiles subject to? Well, not the law of Moses. But here are some things that they need to be aware of that, uh, that do apply to them. And remember, one of those was they need to abstain from fornication, sexual immorality. Why would he bring that up? Well, because it was commonplace and very... And by the way, you go back 70 years uh, in our culture, and it was not commonplace. But it is now in American culture, is it not? Sexual excesses have, uh, have gone beyond what even many pagans have gone toward um, in our day. So, elders would need to be strictly faithful to that uh, one wife that they have and not uh, um, have a bad example in, in their relationships with others. Notice then uh, another thought it, that struck me, uh, trying to sort this out and make sure that we've understood what God intends to communicate to us. If God approves of a man who remarries after his wife dies, does he? Does the Bible teach that a man can remarry after his wife dies? Does that make him or his second wife uh, second class in any way? Um, are they less acceptable to God? Or is that, is that every bit as much an acceptable and appropriate and, and proper marriage uh, in God's sight? Well, the way we would answer that is if both of them are eligible to be married, it would be. Um, you know, children don't like to think of their, of their mother or father dying and then the surviving spouse, the surviving parent, remarrying somebody else. That, that bothers a lot of uh, families. 
And, you know, I can understand all the emotional baggage and everything. But scripturally and legally, God approves of that. May a man remarry after he has scripturally divorced his wife because of her own sexual infidelity. And, of course, the Bible teaches yes. Does that make him a second-class citizen or somehow uh, not to be viewed with uh, the same, what, level of credibility or quality or qualification that an individual who has not uh, had to go through that? No, uh, God, Jesus himself said that uh, a person can do that and they are not living in adultery uh, whenever they engage in marriage a second time. Well, then it follows that these are not to be considered in determining uh, a man's conduct or morality. And I would suggest to you his status as to whether or not he's eligible to function. Uh, move over to... Uh, chapter 5 of this same book, and look at verse 9, where Paul's dealing with a completely different subject, talking about whether or not uh, older women in the church can be given financial assistance from the church. Um, and, and there's some very rigid qualifications given in this section uh, of the book. Uh, one of those is she has to be at least 60. And number two, she has to have been the wife of one man. It's a little bit different expression, but uh, did Paul intend to convey the idea that she could only have been married once? See, that's how we treat 1 Timothy 5, or 1 Timothy 3, verse 12. Look how the various English translators uh, handle this. Instead of wife of one man, the NIV has, has been faithful to her husband. So you, you can't get from that expression. When you, when you omit the number one, then it takes away from it a connotation that I think was not intended to be conveyed. Um, a couple of these other versions. Was faithful to her husband. The, uh, I forgot what these stand for. She must have been faithful in marriage. Uh, the New Century Version. She must have been faithful to her husband. See, all of these translators grasp or, or glean from, this, uh, from the Greek uh, that that's what's being referred to in this passage. Now, interestingly enough, if you go, what, five verses later to verse 14, Paul says, I want the younger widows to marry. Okay? If they're, if they're young, they just need to go ahead and find another husband and marry, scripturally. Well, notice then what that suggests. If verse 9 is telling uh, a widow that she is to have been married only one time, if that's what that means, then if she outlives her second legitimate scriptural husband, she would not be eligible to be placed on widow's assistance once she reached the age of 60. Do you see that? Because uh, she would have been, she would have had two husbands, although scripturally. So for Paul to order, I mean, tell these younger widows, you need to go remarry. You know, one of them could have gone to him and said, well, that's all well and good, but what if he dies and I'm 60 or older and can't take care of myself? You're dooming me. You're consigning me to not ever being, receiving any assistance from the church being placed on the formal role of widows. Well, I don't think that that's, I think Paul would have said, you've misunderstood what I meant by the wife 
of one man. And by the way, if a person cannot serve as a deacon or an elder because they have been scripturally married to a second woman, then notice you're put in the position of having to determine, okay, what if he's only had one wife, but the one wife that he's married to had a previous husband? And he either died or she put him away legitimately for fornication. And now that this man who's married her, his first wife, um, is married scripturally, but she's had two husbands. Well, it seems to me it wouldn't be consistent to say that he was not permitted to have been married a second time, and yet his wife was. Well, it's something for you to chew on and think about. But again, this uh, phrase does not explicitly state married only once. And I would suggest to you that it's talking about, you know, the, the, the Titus passage is the one woman man concept, which again is not stressing uh, only one wife, it's stressing that in his scriptural marriage, he's devoted to her. He's a one woman man. Well, a man could be a one woman man devoted to his wife uh, even though his first wife has died to, which he, to whom he was devoted and he's married another very eligible, godly Christian woman, he could be a one-woman man with her too. As I understand the teaching, a widow who had lived as one husband's wife ought to live, was eligible uh, for church assistance according to that passage in 1 Timothy 5. So, uh, now notice, remember I, I said on all of these qualifications back at the very beginning of our study, it would be difficult for any congregation of the Lord's people to have unanimity on all of these qualifications. I don't know any church that's ever accomplished that. Uh, do they have to? And I would, you know, should a church say, well, because we can't agree, then we're just not going to have, we're not going to install individuals in these positions. Well, I think that um, even though people cannot necessarily agree, they as a congregation need to work that out and uh, make it possible for uh, the church to fulfill God's desires for the church without uh, causing division over the matter. I, in fact, um, I would uh, not have been, I could not have preached. I, I've, worked, uh, I've worked in a formal full-time capacity with five different churches. And um, the ones that had elders, I felt in my study of the Bible and examining some of those men, they weren't qualified. And I don't know that, I know some churches where as far as I know, all the elders are qualified, but uh, would God tell a, would God have a preacher to not preach for a congregation where, say, one out of the five elders uh, is deemed not qualified? A preacher would have a hard time finding a place to preach. I don't think that's required. Uh, so, you know, it, that would be determined by other things. Are they asking the preacher to do something that he cannot conscientiously do in God's sight by, and it would cause him to sin? So that's a different matter. But I don't think that his... Uh, ability to work with a congregation depends upon 
the conditions really of all the members, let alone of the, uh, of the eldership. All he can do is what Titus tells him to do, preach the word with all authority. He exercises the authority in his proclamation of God's truth. But he cannot be a, some sort of a dictator in terms of coercing members of the congregation to conform uh, to what he expects them to be. If there is someone in the congregation that has committed uh, a sin that uh, remains unrepented of, uh, there are protocols that God has given us in 1, Timothy 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and a host of other passages as to what steps are to be taken. But it would be a sad thing for a congregation to divide because they're trying to sort out these qualifications and apply them uh, properly. All right, that brings us then to the question of can females serve in this capacity? Can, can you have a female deacon, a deaconess? And there are only two passages, so far as I know, in the New Testament that even would, could be used to try to justify uh, that concept. Uh, one of them right here where we are. First, First Timothy 3 pauses in verse 11 after starting a discussion of the deacons and talks about females. So is he meaning that to be deaconesses or the wives of those men? And then, of course, Romans 16 is the, the primary passage that people would go to to try to advocate this concept. And it's being advocated within uh, our brotherhood uh, among the liberal churches. I mean, it just is. It, this is one of their, if you made a listing of all the things that they foisted upon the church in recent years, like instruments and a host of other things, this is one. The entire biblical concept of gender, God's view of gender, has been called into question and uh, significantly altered by these liberal churches. Well, let's look at it and see, because you know, I would have no problem with uh, deaconesses or female elders or female preachers if God has no problem with them. Why would I want to uh, step in and, and be against something like that that God himself would not be against? So what does the Bible teach? Well, you remember this passage that refers to Phoebe, and she is said to be a servant of the church in Sincrea. This is the Greek word diakonos. A diakonos is a, um, uh, the terminology that I guess you would use is, um, it doesn't really have gender. Uh, most Greek words do, a noun. You can tell whether it's talking about a male or a female. Uh, but not this word. It's a generic term, a common, I guess they would call it common gender. Because it can be used to refer to both a male or a female. So context has to determine uh, whether both or or one or the other. Uh, looking at our English translations, you'd, you would be pretty confused. You know, English translations, bless their hearts, do a good job of communicating the original language for the most part to us on, on most major doctrines of the Bible. But sometimes they can create confusion among the English-speaking, uh, English-reading audience. The King James and the New King James simply translated servant. The American Standard, which is considered a in our brotherhood to be a very uh, excellent translation. They also put servant in the text, but in a footnote down at the bottom of the page, they put um, a deacon. Uh, the New American Standard follows the American Standard in doing that. The English Standard 
uh, does the same thing. But they all put servant in the text. The NIV has deacon in the text and puts servant in the footnote at the bottom. The New Revised Standard has uh, deacon in the text but puts minister in the endnote or the footnote. And the Revised Standard of 1952 came out in, in total has deacon and deaconess uh, in the margin or down at the bottom. Uh, some other translations. Um, the CEV, I've, I've already forgotten what that is, has leader. Uh, the New American Bible, that's the Catholic uh, translation, has minister, which I would expect them to because that's following the Latin. Wycliffe, which was done back in the 1500s, one of the early English translations available, uh, translates this phrase, who is a servant of the church, translates it, which is in the service of the church. And then Young's literal translation has being a ministrant, notice this is a form of the word minister, of the, and here's your word ecclesia, church or assembly. So a little bit of variety there that, again, might, might lead to some confusion and make it difficult to sort out. The question is then in chapter 16, verse 1, was Phoebe an official, officially appointed deaconess in the same way that males are officially appointed to serve as deacons? And may women be so appointed today? The word is simply defined as one who serves or ministers. There's the idea. That's it. And there's nothing more to draw from that. Uh, as far as its basic meaning. It just, it's a servant, a person who serves or ministers to a person. We have confused this term by calling our preachers ministers. I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that, but it's left the impression that if you're not a male preacher behind the pulpit, you can't be a minister. You're not a minister. That's not how the New Testament uh, handles the situation. Uh, this is actually simply the Latin derivation of the Greek word serves. They mean the same thing, ministre. And therefore they're used uh, generically that way. Uh, since the, the word diakonos is of common gender, it has two senses. And you know, there, we have a lot of words in our Bibles like this. Uh, if you haven't thought about it, I know you faced it and dealt with it where a term will be used in a very technical, formal sense, like, like the word uh, deacon, or it can just be used to refer to somebody that's going and performing a service or serving or ministering to someone else. So you've got to sort out how that is. The technical, formal sense refers to a church office to which one is appointed when certain qualifications designated by the Holy Spirit are met. The non-technical, informal sense refers simply to the generic activities of serving or ministering or attending to someone or a certain uh, responsibility. Here are four other words in our New Testaments where we have to go through this same clarification process. Let's look at these very quickly just for you to understand the concept. There is a technical sense of apostle and there is a non-technical sense. This is actually a transliterated word from the Greek, apostello. It means to, um, to send forth, generally with a message. 
so the, the technical formal uh, meaning, I've gotten these switched, haven't I? Would be an apostle. You know, what we think of when we think of the word apostle, we think of the original 12. And then Matthias was added when Judas killed himself. So there's 13 official apostles. They met specific qualifications given in Acts chapter 1. And Jesus specifically selected them, singled them out, and, and elevated them, I guess you could say, to that very specific role. That's a technical meaning of the term. But the word is used many times in the New Testament. You probably wouldn't even recognize that that's what's taking place because uh, it's simply referring to a person who's been sent and who is uh, a messenger. Same thing with shepherd. We can be talking about somebody that takes care of physical sheep, a sheep herder. The term shepherd is used to refer to them. But then it's also used in the New Testament to refer very specifically to an individual that's met qualifications that are stipulated in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 and has been selected to serve in that capacity. Are you aware of the fact that uh, the original language does not have a special word for wife like we have in English? It's simply the word woman. And context has to determine whether or not he's referring to just a, a female, a woman, or whether he's referring specifically to someone's wife. And the same thing with elder then. Uh, it's used many times in our Bible simply to refer to an aged or older man. But it can also refer, like shepherd, to a very specific church office. So the only way to determine when it's being used which way, you're going to have to go to the context and try to sort that out. And, and I don't know any other way to do it. And of course, if a person goes to the text and wants it to mean a certain thing in a certain passage, uh, they'll probably arrive at that meaning. We've got to approach God's word without bias, not wanting to press our will but what God says. Here are, the, here are occurrences of the term deacon in the New Testament. We don't have time to go through all of these, but to show you how clearly you can determine from the context uh, that it's not referring most of the time to an official capacity. What about Romans 13:4, where Paul said that the government is God's servant in the King James? That's diakonos, deacon. The, the civil government is God's deacon. Well, does that mean the civil government went to the local Church of Christ and, and they checked to make sure that the civil government had met the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and then they appointed the civil government to be a deacon? Of course not. It's not being used that way. It's a non-technical use of the word. What about Romans 15? Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. You know, that's the Jews or Jewish Christians for the truth of God. He, he was trying to serve them. He was trying to help them. Well, was Jesus formally appointed a deacon in the church? Of course not. He, in fact, he left the earth before the church came into existence. Not a formal deacon. In 1 Corinthians 3, both Paul and Apollos are said to be diakonoi, diakonoi, ministers, servants. So far as we know, neither one of them were formally appointed as deacons in the church uh, based upon the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. That's not what it's referring to. It's a non-technical meaning. 2 Corinthians 3, remember uh, Paul said that the apostles had been made ministers of the new covenant. They were ministering it. They were um, presenting it to the first century world. But again, they had not been appointed as deacons. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. Notice the confusion. You've got ministers sometimes, 
you've got servant sometimes, and then of course in 1 Timothy 3 you've got deacon. There's three different English words for the same word. That could be confusing to an English uh, audience. In Romans 16 then, should this be translated deaconess and give people the impression that she is a, an officially appointed individual or not? Well, look at Colossians 1. Paul there said that he had become a minister of the church at Colossae. But again, he was not formally appointed to serve as a deacon. He just meant that he was serving and ministering uh, to the church. So. You've got to be careful about assuming that this is claiming some sort of formal, formally appointed role. No contextual reason exists to assume that either were formal appointees as deacons. Look at this term that occurs in the same context where she's said to be a servant. Paul says she indeed has been a helper of many and of myself also. This is the Greek word prostatus. And some have argued, well, see, that too indicates a technical uh, application. No, it doesn't. It's, it has the same ambiguity that diakonos has, that elder has, that shepherd has. Context has to determine what we're talking about. The word can mean helper in the sense of presiding with authority. Well, in the context, do you think that that's what is being said? Because Paul states she had been a prostatus of many, including me. So did she rule over Paul? Did she hold an authoritative role over a man, an apostle in the church? I don't know who would argue that, that wants to be, you know, uh, to accept scripture in its uh, clear teaching on any number of matters. So that argues against an official meaning in this passage. We even have passages where apostles didn't even exercise an authoritative role over fellow apostles. They didn't have that right. They were all on the same plane. So I would suggest to you that that uh, discredits that viewpoint. But then just step back without the bias and, and read through the, the two verses again where he says, you know, she has been a great servant of the church at this congregation. And you ought to receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many. These are not the same words in the original, but he's using them as synonyms. He's saying, you help and assist and serve her the way she has served and assisted other people. Isn't that, the, isn't that the, the flow of the passage that Paul has written there? And so again, you would not draw the conclusion that she held some sort of an official a role. The actual uh, meaning of the feminine noun prostatus means a protectress, a patroness, a helper. I can envision this uh, first century Christian woman being probably wealthy, uh, probably very influential, had uh, excellent standing, if not in the community, certainly in the spiritual community of the church. Uh, she was probably looked up to, kind of even a mother figure maybe in the church, so to speak. And she therefore, because of her standing and her wealth, 
had been a great patron of the cause of Christ in providing assistance in more ways than even just funding. That's how I make sense of what's going on in that chapter. Now notice uh, in 1 Timothy 3, the way it's translated is wives, keeping in mind that that's a generic term and that there is no special term for wife. Uh, but again, uh, how are you to make sense of this? Is this the technical or the non-technical sense? Well, it's used both ways in 1 Timothy. Let me show you some examples. This is, you know, again, the Bible's not hard to understand if you'll just apply yourself to it. Here's 1 Timothy 2, where the term occurs, what, five times? And I think we would all agree it's using it in the sense of female. Just a woman. Adam was not deceived, but the woman. Not even there being used to refer to his wife. It's simply saying the female. Adam, the male, did not, was not, but the female was. So in all of those cases, it's simply generic uh, for a female, a woman. But then in other places, like here in 1 Timothy 3, it's very clearly talking about a wife. In fact, all three occurrences of this phrase, husband of one wife, is referring to his mate, his wife. So it's used both ways uh, in this book. But notice that neither of these uses imply a deaconess. How would you get that out of it? The technical meaning of gune is wife. The non-technical is female. All right, let me give you six contextual reasons why when I studied this, I ruled out the concept of a deaconess. One, uh, the husband of one wife. That's not a, a fail-safe uh, argument because sometimes the Bible does. You know, like uh, Matthew 99, whoever puts away his wife, except for fornication, marries another, commits adultery. Well, that works both ways. Whoever puts away her husband, except for fornication, right? So the Bible can word it with one gender, but mean for it to apply to both. And number two, um, it would be very unusual in uh, Scripture and for Paul in the middle of his discussion of male deacons to just suddenly switch to female for one verse without giving any clarification. But uh, it would make perfect sense to pause. He's already given the, elder, the qualifications of elders. Then he starts on the deacons and then throws in the comments about the women and then finishes out the discussion. Well, that makes perfect sense because in a role like a church officer role, it's going to be very important about how his wife conducts herself. It will, in fact, uh, hamper his role in that position if she, is not, uh, if she does not give attention to these matters. And notice that also applies to the family as well, which is why in both cases, especially with, for elders, we have a comment about their spiritual condition. The term likewise in verse 11 uh, can mean that the wives should share similar virtues, not detract from her husband's role without implying that they share the same office. Number five, lack of the possessive genitive. In other words, some commentators say, oh, it's talking about deacons. Otherwise, he would have said something like, uh, also the wives of deacons or their um, wives. And since he doesn't do that, it must be talking about uh, deaconesses. But 
that type of thing occurs elsewhere in the Bible. That's, that's not an argument that justifies that. And also notice this. If that really is talking about deaconesses, well, then they have different qualifications for the same office. If God intended to have deacons in the church and that they be male or female without distinction, either one, then we ought to have the same list of qualifications, but we don't. We have different ones that are peculiarly suited to the wife of a church officer. All right, so I drew the conclusion in my study, insufficient textual evidence exists to warrant the conclusion that the office of deaconess is referred to in the New Testament. Bias or preconceived intent must cause one to read the idea into the New Testament. Women have always been assigned prominent roles in the scheme of things by God, but he has always indicated his intention. You know, the Bible's real consistent on this from Genesis to Revelation. That when God created male and female, when he created gender, you know, I suppose God didn't have to do that. Did he? But he did, and then made it very clear that they are different. They're different anatomically. They're different in terms of their role responsibility, in terms of even things like psychological and emotional um, differences. There's so much difference. Well, why? Why would God do that? Because he wants them to accomplish different things. He wants them to serve in different roles. He has different assigned responsibilities, and that's clarified throughout the rest of the Bible. Especially when you come to 1 Timothy 2, uh, you see it clarified very succinctly where he goes all the way back to creation and says, look here, this carries over into the church. God has always intended for males by divine design uh, to be the leaders in the home. Well, does that suggest that um, um, that uh, men are superior to women? Absolutely not. I do not think that it's coincidental or that God was trying to accommodate a chauvinistic culture of the day that he did not appoint any women as, as apostles. I think that's very, very deliberate. And uh, he could have very easily included women in elderships. You know, there's a church up in Birmingham, claims to be Church of Christ, uh, that has women in their eldership. Uh, he would have, uh, remember in, in Acts 6, where he singled out these deacons, we call them deacons, to take care of the distribution of food to the widows. He could have easily appointed some women in that number. I think all of this uh, speaks volumes uh, very loudly. Now, we don't determine um, whether we've understood the New Testament correctly by going to outside the church in the first, second, third century. But uh, history is very clear on this matter outside of the Bible. There is a letter that was written by the governor Bithynia, uh, AD 110, into the second century, and he does use the Latin term ministre, from which we get the English word minister, which is the equivalent of the word servant or diakonos. But it too, you see, is vague, so you can't even be sure what he's saying about them. Uh, of course, we would not base our understanding of Bible doctrine upon a passing reference by an uninformed non-Christian. Christian historical sources from this same period do not refer to deaconesses, even though we have, we have written passages from early Christian writers. I'm talking about second and third century and after, where they talk about the organization of the church, preachers and elders and so forth. 
They don't say anything about deaconesses. It's a glaring absence in the discussion of the organizational structure of the church. You have to come down to the second century in one particular document where you find a reference to deaconesses. Their roles consisted of aiding the baptism of women, going to the homes of Christian women whose husbands were non-Christians, and visiting the sick and aiding them, like bathing them and so forth. That's what they did. Now this is, you know, 200 years after the close of the first century. The full-blown church order of deaconesses does not appear in history until the fourth and fifth centuries. And again, their roles are very specific. They would keep the doors. They would aid female baptisms. They would do other work. But they were confined with women and the work that was very peculiar to uh, the needs of women. And it's interesting to me that the liberal element in the Church of Christ that has been pushing for a number of years for deaconesses, they're not, gonna, they're not content with that role. That's not why they want to have deacons. They want their women to preach and teach and mix public assemblies and do all the things that men do. That's what they want. That's their goal. That's their objective. And my point is that even if you were to argue that, you know, this role should be allow women, well, they didn't function in a leadership role. They didn't exercise authority over men in the church. That would be a direct violation of explicit statements made in the New Testament. So, uh, those who insist upon establishing this office, you know, there was a, uh, there's a church out in Texas that abolished, here's the way they, this is how deceitful and underhanded our brethren can be when they want to do what they want to do. Uh, this same church did the same thing when they introduced instruments. They just decided to just abolish the office of deacon. Okay, get that out of here. Now we're going to have a special category of people that we're going to call special servants. Now, so that's what they did. And they put women, men and women in, in those roles. Just deliberately trying to sidestep, sideskirt the issue. Still get their way, put women in official roles, and yet um, do it in a sneaky sort of way that they no doubt felt softened it for many people. But I believe they're going to give an account for that at the end of time. They're not fooling God. Always remember, differentiation in role and assigned responsibilities based on gender in the Bible from one end to the other. No way implies a difference in worth, value, or ability. Always remember, men and women are absolutely equal as far as their person and salvation status are concerned. Galatians 3 28 and 29 states that women are not inferior to men. I've stated on many occasions, have I not, that uh, if anything, men are inferior to women in several areas. And like women typically score higher on IQ tests than men. Men are dumb, women are smarter. Women tend to get more emotional, but that's because the men are dumb. <laughs> Women are not inferior to men according to the Bible. Created by God, they have simply been assigned unique functions. All right, that's a good place for us to stop. Hope this is helpful to you, and uh, please do your own study and, and um, Give me any feedback that you'd like to give me to help me in my own study of these matters. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation this evening, will you do that?
faith, repentance, confession, baptism, to become a New Testament Christian, or to uh, make changes as a Christian that you need to make before the church publicly. You can do either one of those as we stand and sing this hymn together. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. He's a golden Make me fully whole. In sorrow he's my comfort, in trouble he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's a lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. Oh, he all my griefs have taken and all my sorrows borne. In temptation he's my strong and mighty time. I have all of him forsaken and all my idols torn from my heart and now he keeps me by his power. Though all the world forsake me and Satan tempt me sore, through Jesus I shall safely reach the goal. He's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of ten thousand to my soul. Please be seated. Can we get lights on in here? Is there something? All right, thank you. Uh, the next song in, in preparation for the Lord's Supper be number 265. Number 265. If you did not have the opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper today, uh, it has been left prepared for you. And you're welcome to come to the front during the song as we sing uh, the first, uh, all three verses of When My Love to Christ Grows Weak. When my love to Christ grows weak, when for deeper faith I seek, when in thought I go to Thee, Garden of Gethsemane, when my love for man grows weak, when for stronger faith I seek. Hill of Calvary I go to thy scenes of fear and woe. Then to life I turn again learning all
remind us of what he has done. We thank you, our Father, for the Son of the Bread, which represents his body as he hung on the cross. We pray that you might bless it, bless those who partake of it, as they might do so may pleasing in sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Closing song will be number 288, number 288. If you're able, let's all stand together, please. We want to thank everyone for coming out tonight, especially those who are visiting. Dave, thank you very much for another wonderful lesson. Um, I know it is, again, a very sobering thought when we think about uh, uh, the requirements that God's putting on all of us, uh, especially those who take a leadership role in the church. Again, number 288, we'll sing uh, the first and last verse and then be dismissed in prayer. Abide with me, fast falls even tide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me. Help of love.
for my closing eyes shine through the gloom and point me to the skies and morning breaks and earth's faint shadows flee in life in death Oh,